You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that Yahweh has commanded you to do. Six days' work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to Yahweh. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that Yahweh has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to Yahweh. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring Yahweh's contribution. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins, and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod, and for the breastpiece. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that Yahweh has commanded. The tabernacle, its tent and its covering, its hooks and its frames, its bars, its pillars and its bases, the ark with its poles, the mercy seat and the veil of the screen, the table with its poles and all its utensils, and the bread of the presence, the lampstand also for the light with its utensils and its lamps, and the oil for the light and the altar of incense with its poles, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense, and the screen for the door, at the door of the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering, with its grating of bronze, its poles, and all its utensils, the basin at its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars at its bases, and the screen for the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle, and the pegs of the court, and their cords, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, every one whose heart stirred him, and every one whose spirit moved him, and brought Yahweh's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting, and for all its service, and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women. All who were of a willing heart brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to Yahweh, and every one who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ram's skins or goat skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as Yahweh's contribution, and everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it, and every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair, and the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and spices and oil for the light, and for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that Yahweh had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a freewill offering to Yahweh. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, 
See, Yahweh has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen or by a weaver by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom Yahweh has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that Yahweh has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind Yahweh had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work, and they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work of the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him freewill offerings every morning, so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that Yahweh has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command. The word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. And all the craftsmen among the workmen made the tabernacle with ten curtains they were made of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns with cherubim skillfully worked. The length of each curtain was 28 cubits and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains were the same size. He coupled five curtains to one another and the other five curtains he coupled to one another. He made loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain of the first set. Likewise, he made them on the edge of the outermost curtain of the second set. He made 50 loops on the one curtain, and he made 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that was in the second set. The loops were opposite one another, and he made 50 clasps of gold and coupled the curtains one to the other with clasps. So the tabernacle was a single whole. He also made curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. He made 11 curtains. The length of each curtain was 30 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain 4 cubits. The 11 curtains were the same size. He coupled 5 curtains by themselves and 6 curtains by themselves, and he made 50 loops on the edge of the outermost curtain of the one set and 50 loops on the edge of the other connecting curtain. And he made 50 clasps of bronze to couple the tent together that it might be a single whole, and he made for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and goat skins. Then he made the upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits was the length of a frame, and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. Each frame had two tenons for fitting together. He did this for all the frames of the tabernacle. The frames for the tabernacle he made thus. Twenty frames for the south side. And he made forty bases of silver under the twenty frames. Two bases under one frame for its two tenons, and two of silver, two bases under one frame, and two bases under the next frame. 
For the rear of the tabernacle westward, he made six frames. He made two frames for corners of the tabernacle in the rear, and they were separate beneath but joined at the top at the first ring. He made two of them this way for the two corners. There were eight frames with their bases of silver, 16 bases under every frame, two bases. He made bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of the one side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the tabernacle at the rear westward. And he made the middle bar to run from end to end halfway up the frames. And he overlaid the frames with gold and made their rings of gold for holders for the bars and overlaid the bars with gold. He made the veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen with cherubim skillfully worked into it. He made it and for it, he made four pillars of acacia and overlaid them with gold. Their hooks were of gold, and he cast for them four bases of silver. He also made a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, embroidered with needlework, and its five pillars with their hooks. And he overlaid their capitals, and their fillets were of gold, but their five bases were of bronze. to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 586 of this podcast. This is a Thursday, actually, and March 30th, 2023. And that was a bit of Exodus, as you know, if you've been listening here lately, we're going through the book of Exodus and we talked through quite a lot of the book of Genesis before this, but The passage I just read, specifically if you want to go and read it more closely on your own, is Exodus 35 and 36, having to do with Sabbath regulations, having to do with contributions for the tabernacle, having to do with construction of the tabernacle. And some of that probably sounded familiar if you were listening, oh, I don't know, a week or two ago. As we read through the passage where God gives instructions to Moses for how the tabernacle and the various things that go into the tabernacle are to be constructed and of what materials and how many and what dimensions. But what's important about this, it's not repetitive like Moses, for instance, forgot that he had already written this stuff down. What you have on the front end is God giving these instructions to Moses. What you have here on the back end is Moses relaying those instructions faithfully to the people of Israel and to the specific workmen who are going to be doing the work. And a couple of things really stand out to me, and I want to talk about them because they are important for what comes next, what follows in the course of our discussion in this podcast episode. One thing that occurs to me is that you have this idea, even in the Old Testament, of giving of your own free will, of giving what you choose to give and what you can gladly give, what you feel cheerful in giving, because the Lord, we read elsewhere, loves a cheerful giver. You don't have these things being taken by force. You don't have them 
being taken under compulsion. You don't have them being taken by way of a guilt trip. You have them being given freely after an invitation is offered to give. And more to the point, you don't just have barely enough. You know, sometimes that'll happen when there's an ask for resources, for support, for money in particular. You will have those who have asked for a contribution coming up short. They ask for a certain amount. They say, we need a certain amount to build a building or to do a project, and they're not given enough. And they have to come back and ask for more. Or they'll ask for a certain amount, and then because they didn't plan things out very well in advance, they find that they've gone over budget. And so now it's either the project is going to be incomplete or they're going to come and say, hey, in order to finish, we need a little bit more than we thought originally. What you have here is coming in under budget. (laughs) You have an invitation to contribute being made, being issued to the people of Israel, and they're giving in excess of what is needed to do the work. Also, you have all of the planning and all of the details on the front end. So when enough has come in, what doesn't happen? What doesn't happen is people are giving over and above and they keep on giving and giving and giving. And Moses is like, yeah, keep it coming. Keep it coming. We'll find something to do with the extra. No, he issues a proclamation to all the people. Oh, okay. All right. That's enough. We're full. We got what we needed to. We have plenty. We have more than enough to do the work that God has told us to do. That's enough. And I think that's significant. I think for anybody who is running a charitable organization or a 501c3 or a nonprofit, anybody who's running an organization of any kind and doing fundraising work, especially as a Christian, if you are doing work as a Christian and you're inviting others to partner with you financially, it's good to have planned out what the money is going to be going for and to know when enough has come in. It's good to also be willing to say, that's enough. We're good. We're good. We are fully funded. We don't need any more. I think, in fact, that puts to rest a lot of suspicions that people will have in our day where we're all very cynical about giving, about charitable giving, particularly for religious institutions, religious organizations. We've seen funds be misappropriated. And if we are asked to give, we say, yeah, but how how do I know you're going to use the money or use the resources that I give to you wisely? How do I know you're not going to just skim off the top and live this lavish lifestyle? The farthest thing is conceived from that (laughs) in this passage here where you've got God himself who owns everything. I mean, this is all very symbolic and it's very much a gesture because God could just make all of the materials appear and he could build the whole thing himself. But that's not the point, actually. There's something significant in having skilled workmen do the actual work. God issues the commands. He gives the instructions. But it's going to be skilled workmen who God has blessed with skillfulness. And even it says, filled with the Holy Spirit to do this work. God is having people do the work. 
God is having people supply the raw materials and the resources to do the work. And so there's a significance here. There is a spiritual act of worship that is going on, even just in skilled artisans and craftsmen employing their trades to make these things well and to make these things according to the specifications, according to the instructions given by Moses from God to Moses from God and then afterwards to the people. That's really significant. Both of these things, one, that you have more contributions coming in and then you have the proclamation, that's enough, we're good, we're good, we have everything we need, thank you, thank you, thank you everyone, (laughs) that's all. (laughs) Go back to what you were doing, right? (laughs) That's significant. Uh, Also significant is that this is a free will offering. Emphasis on the free. You are free to give. The thing that is required does not require compulsion and arm twisting and force. There's no threat of force here. The work is very important. In fact, it's the most important work they could possibly be doing to obey God. The work is very, very important, but you don't have the threat of violence if you don't give here. You don't. Also, you have skilled workmen who are worshiping God by employing their knowledge, their handiness, their skill in doing this work. This is an act of worship. Uh, Or else, what's the point of having the Holy Spirit fill someone who is going to be overseeing the work that's being done? What's the point of having the Holy Spirit fill? Usually, in other contexts, it's in conjunction with a word from the Lord or some deed of valor and courage and strength, martial prowess to deliver God's people from their oppressors. Those are the two more common, as I've always read, couplings with the filling of the Holy Spirit for those who are going to do the work that God has for them to do. In this case, though, we have skilled workmen being filled with the Holy Spirit to do this work. And it reminds me of the passage, whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it with all your strength as unto the Lord. Work as one approved to God. Study to show yourself an approved workman who needs not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. In some sense, this is more related to skillfully handling the truth than it is just doing regular old work, right? There's no shuffling of the feet. There's no begrudging, oh, well, I guess if we have to. No, no. No, there's a joy that accompanies this. There's a happiness. There's an excitement. There's an eagerness. There's an enthusiasm because this is something God has commanded and we can do it in an excellent way, in a praiseworthy way, in a way that glorifies God, in a way that honors God, in a way that pleases God. And I think if more of us were to remember that, it would inform how we go about the work that we do in our daily lives. I think it would inform the work that we do if we were thinking that that is within the realm of possibilities. And in fact, I think it's something that we should pursue. We should try and figure out what work we are skilled at, that God has blessed us with skill and ability and wisdom to do, 
that we can do in an excellent way that glorifies God with the material resources that we have at our disposal, that he has made available to us, that he has blessed us with? How can we work skillfully in a way that brings glory and honor to God? How can we be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing and acceptable to God? Be a living sacrifice. Obedience is what God desires more than sacrifice. And we shouldn't forget that, particularly in these days where we have economic woes. And I think for me as a working man, as the breadwinner in my household, as the husband, as the father who goes out and works and earns a paycheck and all that, I think this is motivating for me because I look at this and I think with the economy doing what it's doing, with inflation and I would say harebrained uh, fiscal policy, (laughs) monetary policy, harebrained, if not sometimes downright devious uh, economic policies at work in play here in the U.S. and around the world from a lot of the same kinds of folks who want a one-world government, and they and they do. I'm not imagining that. That isn't something I made up or dreamt. They do. They want a one-world government. That's why we call them globalists. The notion that we can still find motivation to do excellent work and to be cheerful about it, to be looking forward to doing excellent work and taking pride in our work in an appropriate way, doing work that is praiseworthy, Maybe you could say, if the word pride you know, worries you for some of its semantic range issues, pride's sometimes a very bad thing, often a very bad thing, but it can be a good thing when it means you're doing things that are praiseworthy and you're pleased with that fact, you're contented with that fact. I think to reframe all the work that we're doing and still find a value in it, maybe all the more, more than ever before, when we're only doing it when God gives us the reason and the rationale. We're doing it because we love God and we love one another. I think that's important. I think that's an important thing that we should hold on to. And it is part of seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added unto us. If we find favor with men as a result, that's fine, right? But we're not doing the excellent work We're not doing the hard work in the best way we possibly can, the best way we know how, first and foremost, to get the approval of men. And that's important to remember when you sometimes are going to be working with people who won't be pleased no matter how good the work is. In fact, sometimes you'll work with people who are looking for things to find fault with in your work just because they don't like you. As a Christian, as We live increasingly in a post-Christian age. That will get to be more and more of a feature of our working lives, where no matter how excellent the work is that you do, people will try and find something to pick at, something to insinuate about your work ethic or your skill or your intelligence or your integrity, because they don't like that you're a Christian. They don't like that you have a sense of right and wrong that disapproves of their manner of living, their lifestyle, their sensibilities, their attitudes, their way of relating to people. They don't like that. And so in order to knock you down a peg or neutralize you or put you in your place or dissuade you, they're not going to be pleased. They just will be impossible to please for you. And yet you have to be blameless. We see that Old Testament. We see that New Testament. You have to be blameless anyways 
and trust in God and put your hope in God approving because that's fixed. That's stable. That's steady. You can take that to the bank as it were, but not banks these days because the banks these days are all collapsing. It's all funny money, it seems increasingly. Not for no purpose, not for no reason, but all these things will be added unto us if we're seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, which we must, which we must, we must, we must. Moving on from Exodus, I want to talk a bit about something that came to my attention actually when I very first got back. I didn't want to podcast about it right out the gate when we very first got back from our trip, my son Solomon and I doing a whirlwind tour of four national parks, a state park, a national monument, four states technically, 1,600 miles, four days. I didn't want to talk about this right out the gate because I wanted to take some time to think it through, think it over. But just a little bit of backstory, and this is going to be very candid, very off the cuff, this episode. My family and I have been using Ambleside Online as our curriculum for several years now, and we've been very pleased with it. And if you don't know anything about Ambleside Online, the brief overview from the About Us page at AmblesideOnline.org is that Ambleside Online's free Charlotte Mason homeschool curriculum prepares children for a life of rich relationship with God, humanity, and the natural world. Basically, Charlotte Mason is something of a guru of educational philosophy. She wrote extensively about how we should approach, how we should think about cultivating young minds. And she's very well-respected among homeschoolers in particular. Charlotte Mason is not known to all, right? You'll find plenty of people who are homeschooling without even an awareness of who Charlotte Mason was, much less what she thought or what she taught or what she wrote. But in the case of this curriculum, I'll just say for a very high-level explanation summary, there's a heavy emphasis on reading classical works, the great works, reading great books that have been regarded as timeless. In the canon of Western literature, in the history of Western civilization in particular, you read these books, you think them through, you discuss them, you talk about them, and They are timeless treasures that will make you wiser, that will help you to see the world more clearly, that won't necessarily just teach you what to think. They will help you to learn how to think better. And the point of education really is first and foremost, character formation, secondarily to know things so that you can do work skillfully. Making money is a byproduct But first and foremost, education is about character formation. It's about helping mold and shape you into somebody who is knowledgeable and wise and hopefully, insofar as people can be good, even with a sinful nature to grapple with and contend with, you can be good. And so that said, the reading list gets freshened up from year to year and There are a couple of groups within AO, within Ambleside Online, this organization, who oversee that process of looking over the reading lists, looking over the curriculum every year. 
and making tweaks and adjustments so as to improve it, so as to make it better and better. And that's laudable, right? That's a good thing. That's an honorable thing to do because what was I just saying about being skilled workmen and doing good work and presenting ourselves as one's approved to God because we want God's approval, first and foremost. We're not looking for man's approval, first and foremost. It's a good thing to be looking back over your curriculum and making sure that it's always fresh, making sure that if there are ways to improve it and make it better, you are taking advantage of those and you're working with other people to do so. That's good. That's good and laudable and praiseworthy. And I have no problem with that. Now that said, there are a couple of announcements that have been made in the Facebook group. There's a Facebook community for Ambleside Online. They have a page where it's more of a one-way street. They do the talking and let people know what is what. There's that on Facebook. And then there's also a Facebook community, which is a closed group where you have to ask to join and then you're invited in and you're allowed to be a part of it. And then posts and conversations, materials that are posted, you'll have access to. Otherwise, they're private and you can't look at them. But if you're part of this group, then you can have access and you can take a look and you can see things for yourself and read and stay up to date, right? Which is good. Well, my wife is on this group. I'm not on this group because she takes point on the execution piece. I am the overseer and I supplement here and there where I might be able to explain a concept or a subject better because I'm more familiar than my wife is, or I have more of a temperament for that subject, more of an interest in that subject. I've read more on that subject, but my wife takes point. And so she's part of this discussion group. And when I came home from this long trip with Solomon this past weekend, my wife shared with me a couple of screenshots, actually three, two that pertained to one post, one that pertained to a different post, one from summer of last year, and then one from the day of, actually, the day that we got back, Monday. And I'm going to read these to you so that you know I am not just reading things into the announcements that were made, but rather how they are worded lends itself, particularly when these are well-read articulate individuals who are making the announcements, who are reading the announcements. Uh, The reading of the way this announcement and that announcement is presented and worded uh, is significant in some important ways that maybe are not being appreciated by the advisory and the auxiliary for AO. So first, the more recent announcement And I quote, I'll just read the full thing. I don't want to skip any of it. I don't want to rush it because words are important. The meaning of words is important. The context is important. And I quote, the world has changed in just a few years and so many issues have evolved. As a result, some of our worldview books are no longer current. They were dealing with issues that mattered eight years ago, but the world is rapidly changing and we want Ambleside Online students to be prepared for the world that's out there right now, rather than 15 years ago, and ready to live in that world. 
This is for years 7 to 12. We've changed the titles. Devotional is now Spiritual Formation, and Bible is now a separate category, and Worldview is now Citizenship. For the Spiritual Formation books, we have added some inspirational missionary biographies. We've also increased the impact of the other books by highlighting just one or two per year. We have added one current book that's written by a contemporary, Jackie Hill Perry, yet is still doctrinally sound. Thus, AO's position hasn't changed. We've merely found a new voice to add to our timeless classic books. Citizenship includes ourselves, Plutarch, worldview, government, and economics, and current events. You can find all of those subjects in this category. A few more important notes. Some of the books on the now old list in these categories are still included in the new list as optional or as free reads in other years. For those of you who wish to still use the old book lists and schedules, they will remain available on our website through the 2023 to 2024 school year. And always, always, always be sure to check our footnotes. Thank you. Edited to add, our current events page is being updated and the master book list sheet is being updated as well. But we didn't want to hold this up. We'll keep you posted. Smiley face. All right. So let's just take this announcement. Just take this announcement by itself before we go back to last June. Most of this is no big deal at all right? No big deal at all. If you want to call this or that category something different because that'll more closely align with some other curriculums like CMEC, for instance, you want there to be more of a close adherence to how Charlotte Mason would have categorized things. That's fine. I have no concerns, no objections whatsoever. That's fine. If there's something untoward about it, I'm missing it. And I just shrug and I say, okay, cool. Cool. And keep in mind too, I'm somebody who was homeschooled growing up. I have no, <laughs> I have no ax to grind. I wrote the book and this is why we homeschool. I have no ax to grind against homeschooling. I definitely don't have a problem with going back over and making homeschooling what it can be, the best that it can be for your child. In fact, that's one of the big things that I say as a proponent of homeschooling. Homeschooling is what you make it. So make it as good as it possibly can be. Great stuff. The first paragraph, though, uh, the first paragraph in conjunction with the announcement from last June is what concerns me in particular. And then there's a little bit here in, uh, I guess you could call it the fourth paragraph. One of these paragraphs is just a sentence. But the first paragraph in particular really sends off uh, alarm bells and signal flares in my mind, because I look at this and I think, Ooh, Oh no. Oh no, no, no. In conjunction with some of the changes that you're making here, this could be a, a bad sign. This could be a really bad sign actually. And I quote, just to read it again, the world has changed in just a few years and so many issues have evolved. All right, let's just stop. I don't want to be pedantic here and I don't want to be nitpicky, but I actually have been thinking here lately about when people say the world has changed, right? The world will never be the same again after this or that event, right? Something big happens, you know, 9-11, for instance, Pearl Harbor, for instance, <laughs> the firing on Fort Sumter, for instance. I mean, it, it, there are things that happen that are very significant and that very much alter our view of the world, I would grant you that. And 
there are things that maybe reframe our thinking or present new challenges or new opportunities. Okay, yes, yes. But the world has not changed. The issues have not evolved. Maybe the conversation has shifted. Maybe our perception of the world has shifted. But that's not the same thing, right? That's not the same thing. And it's important to know that and to be firm on that. Maybe we are understanding better the world that we live in as some things happen or as we read certain things. That's the whole idea of education is that we would understand better the world that we actually live in and that we've lived in all along. But there is no new thing under the sun. And that really is my point. That's my counterpoint to this first statement and everything else that can potentially follow when somebody says the world has changed. The world has changed. And so now we need to upend everything that we were doing. Watch out because that that happens a lot. And I'm not trying to conflate every other time that that happens with what's going on here with the AO announcement, but it can creep in. It can absolutely creep in. The world has changed in just a few years and so many issues have evolved. When we see that from the viewpoint of the AO advisory and auxiliary, their worldview books, some of them are no longer current. I say, uh, wait a second, are these timeless treasures or aren't they? You know, that's, that's part of the problem with pulling in too many contemporary books, too many contemporary works, because it's really hard to tell when something's hot off the presses, whether it's a timeless treasure. I mean, it's a little too soon. Timeless, classic, really needs to be reserved for things which have over time had staying power, right? You can use the word classic in a number of ways. You could say, oh, well, that's classic because it harkens back to things that are classic. Okay, great. I'll I'll grant you that. But a narrower usage of the word really should be reserved for things which have been around for quite some time and they have a shelf life that is proven. They've been tried. These ideas have been tried. They've been implemented and the results have been beneficial and are desirable. And therefore we also are reading and listening and considering and weighing and responding and living accordingly in some sense. Also a big question in my mind is what mattered eight years ago that doesn't matter today? What mattered eight years ago that doesn't matter today? Because that is a way that you can read this as if to imply some of their books that were dealing with worldview are just outdated. They just don't matter because we don't view the world that way anymore. And I just say, whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. It's not the world that changed. It's the perception of the world that has shifted. And there's two ways that we could go when we say certain issues mattered eight years ago and they don't matter anymore. One way we would go would say, ah, we realize that some of these classic works that we should have been reading to prepare us for the cultural moment, the crisis, the conflict (laughs) of visions we're living through right now, some of the books we should have been reading to prepare, we weren't. But we're going to incorporate those classic works that show parallels to the time that we're living in now because we believe that there is no new thing under the sun. 
you could go that direction with it. And I would say that's the right direction to go with it. Because there is no new thing under the sun. Because people are people. There's a, there's a bit of a shell game with progressivism, with leftism, radical leftism in this country right now is increasingly disconnected from reality. They inhabit our reality, right? But that's not to say that they are connected with reality. They are living in an unreality when they affirm gender and sexual identities that are perverse, that are nonsensical, that are foolish, that are destructive, that are harmful, and then threaten even murder of men, women, and children, particularly who are Christians after this most recent school shooting tragedy in Nashville at a Christian school by a transgendered identifying woman who had gone to that school years and years ago. We're going to get more of that. And so on the one hand, you could say, ah, well, we should have been reading more books about what you should do, how you should think, how you should prepare yourself or guard yourself, orient yourself to serve God and be faithful in the midst of a corrupt generation. We should have been reading those kinds of books, but we're going to start now. You can't go back and change your minds, but we're going to start now because this is no new thing under the sun. We're going to go back and read more of Eusebius's The Church History. We're going to read more of Augustine's The City of God, for instance, than we were reading. If that were the direction this were going, if that were something of the flavor of the announcement that was made last June, or what we find in the fourth paragraph here, I would say, oh, okay, cool. But let me read for you the announcement from last June, and we'll come back to paragraph four in this most recent announcement. From Donna Jean Breckenridge, who I'm sure is a lovely woman. I'm sure she's a a very lovely, well-intentioned, intelligent, capable, studious woman. I don't know her personally. Uh, Lauren and I know someone who knows her and who knows the advisory and the auxiliary. And I mean no disrespect to the people we know who know Donna Jean. I mean no disrespect to Donna Jean or the rest of the AO auxiliary and advisory. But as someone who's the head of my household, who wrote the book, and this is why we homeschool, who was homeschooled himself, I have lots of family and friends who are homeschooled who were homeschooled or who are homeschooling their kids now, I have to speak to this. I just have to. June 24th, 2022. And I quote, on Ambleside Online's website, we say that this country of ours is a classic work for which we have found no equal, and it is an important spine in the AO curriculum. We stand by that statement, and we recommend the book, for the very end of year two, and for all of years three, four, and five, H.E. Marshall's book was published in the United States in 1917, and it therefore has certain terms and expressions that are no longer in usage today. Over the years, I've wanted to update the book to add some notes and helps that would enhance the reading for a new generation. That project is partway done. I've completed volume one, which is chapters one to 28, in an annotated, expanded, and updated version. Here are a few of the things that are added or adjusted adjusted in this version. Now, key in on the word adjusted. It's not all just adding footnotes, as some suppose. The sources of Marshall's many quotes are listed 
as accurately as possible. Excellent. That's, that is excellent. I find no fault with that. The removal of outdated or color-based terms for native people, replacing them with the tribal name wherever possible. Okay, that, okay, that, that is a problem. That, that is a problem, ladies and gentlemen. That is a problem. That is more than a footnote. That is, that is not footnoting. When you remove, quote, outdated or color-based terms for native people, that is not a footnote. You are crossing a line here. You were doing well to add footnotes. This is not that. All right? A change in terms that are now considered offensive, such as the term for a native woman. Again, crossing a line. There's a line, and you crossed it. <laughs> uh, new information that is pertinent, such as links to Viking discoveries or how the Spotswood Peace Treaty continues to this day. Again, great. That's a great change. That's a great addition. You're making it better. You're improving. You're not taking away, and you're not... I would say corrupting. You're not corrupting when you are adding links. A pronunciation guide for names of people or tribes and definitions of some words that are not easily understood in the context. Again, no issue. In some places, a few sentences or paragraphs that add more to the story where it's helpful, enhanced punctuation to make read aloud easier, a switch to American spellings rather than British spellings. I wouldn't have done that last one. I don't see that that is necessary. I don't uh, leave it spelled in the British way if it was written in a British spelling or don't. It's not a hill to die on. I wouldn't have done that. Uh, All notes here at the end of each chapter so as not to disrupt the reading. One additional change. The title of chapter 17 has been changed to a year to be remembered and the peace of Pocahontas ends. In the process of this project, I have been impressed once again by Marshall's passion for the truth, by her fairness, and by her gift of writing. The story of America is compelling, and she has done a worthy job of telling it. This version seeks to follow in her footsteps. This version is now available in paperback, hardcover, and an an inexpensive Kindle version. Volume 2 will be available in a few months, with the third volume completed in a similar time period. Volume 4 will be original material, taking the story beyond 1917 for term 1 of year 6. Charlotte Mason wrote, quote, It is never too late to mend, but we may not delay to offer such a liberal and generous diet of history to every child in the country as to give weight to his decisions, consideration to his actions, and stability to his conduct. That stability, the lack of which has plunged us into many a stormy sea of unrest. In this stormy sea of unrest, here is a new look at this country of ours. Please know that anyone can still use the original version of TCOO and the free version online, but if you want the updated version, it is available on Amazon. Okay, so that's the announcement. That's the the announcement from last June. Let me explain, please, please hear me when I go through what concerns me here and in conjunction with the most recent announcement regarding worldview, regarding a lot changing in eight years, regarding the inclusion of one contemporary author in the lineup. To go back to the work of an author who you regard as being this very clear voice, very insightful, committed passionately to the truth, unparalleled, unmatched in her way of expressing and describing 
the American story. If you want to add some footnotes here and there, when certain words are hard to pronounce or we are unfamiliar, or we may want to read more somewhere else to flesh out something that H.E. Marshall just briefly touched on, that's fine, right? That's that's great. As I've already said, I'll say it again and again. That's good. That's praiseworthy. That's excellent. <sighs> to add the footnotes is one thing. To go changing terms because they are now considered offensive is of a piece with the revisionist work that is being done by publishers of the works of Roald Dahl, for instance, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, James and the Giant Peach, Matilda. His works are being revised in a very similar way for very similar reasons because they contain terms or phrases that are deemed offensive now. And I think that that is wrong. I think that's dangerous. I think that that is a bad idea I think that there is something sacred about the writings of an author who has passed away, especially because you can't ask them. You can't ask them for permission to do that to their work. You're not asking their permission. And these aren't authors of works in other languages where sometimes we get a more complete manuscript and the scholarship has to assess that and then it comes through into a translation. That's not what this is. These are works written in English long enough ago that the authors have passed away, but not so long ago that you don't know what they were trying to say. And where does it stop? Where does it stop if we start editing out the red man, for instance, or if there's a reference to the yellow man or the black man? Where does it stop if we start editing those out and we just start doing whatever we please with works which by our own admission, are timeless classics and treasures. We start taking liberties based on what is now deemed offensive. Where does it stop? My answer to that question is that it doesn't stop with just omitting the word squaw, for instance, because now the word squaw, I think, is the term. They don't say, Donna Jean Breckenridge doesn't say here, and uh, I, I didn't see who made the more recent announcement, but you know, supposing it's a different member of the advisory or auxiliary at AO. I, I don't know, right? I, I don't know if it was the word squaw, but I presume that it was the word squaw because when I go and look up the word squaw, and I don't know of any other word or term for a Native American woman, Wikipedia tells me that the English word squaw is an ethnic and sexual slur. Historically used for indigenous North American women, contemporary use of the term, especially by non-natives, especially by non-natives, especially by non-natives, is considered derogatory, misogynist, and racist. While the morpheme, squaw, or close variant, is found within longer words in several Eastern and Central Algonquin languages, primarily spoken in the Northeastern United States and in Eastern and Central Canada. These languages only make up a small minority of the indigenous languages of North America. The word squaw is not used among Native American, First Nations, Inuit, or Metis peoples. Now, they say that, but if you scroll down to the etymology section, what we find is this. Eastern and Central Algonquin morphemes, smallest units of meaning, meaning woman mostly found as components in longer words include Massachusetts, squaw, woman, Abenaki, squaw, female, wife, Mohegan Piqua, squaw, Cree, Iskwe, woman, Ojibwe, Ikwe, woman. 
Variants in other related languages are esqua, square, square, que, qua, exque, and exque. These are all derived from proto-Algonquin for particularly young woman. The notion that the word originally referred to a woman's body part is inaccurate, according to linguist Ives Goddard. In the first published report of indigenous American languages in English, a key into the language of America written in 1643, Puritan minister Roger Williams wrote his impressions of the Narragansett language. Williams noted morphemes that he considered to be related to squaw and provided the definitions he felt fit them as a learner, including squaw, woman, squasuk, women, squaw, virgin or maid, squaw, widower, and squasnit, woman's god. So all this is to say, all of this is to say, ladies and gentlemen, because someone has decided to be a community organizer and try and make an issue where there presumably was none in English-speaking peoples using the Native American, New England tribes word for woman, because somebody has decided to be offended and then convinced a whole lot of other people to be offended about this, and because they've put it into a Wikipedia article and some such, saying that this is a racial and sexual slur. Therefore, H.E. Marshall's work will have every instance of the word squaw stricken from it? Really? You know, there's a, a great book by George Orwell called 1984, in which these kinds of games are played with language. And it's a loyalty test. And it's not meant to make sense. When Winston is being tortured in 1984 so that he will say 2 plus 2 equals 5, the point is not that Big Brother, the government, the state, these totalitarians actually think that 2 plus 2 equals 5. They don't actually think that. It's not the point. The point is you will submit. You will obey. We will not permit you to say 2 plus 2 equals 4 if we told you to say 2 plus 2 equals equals 5. It's about crushing Winston's will. It's about getting him to renounce the use of reason so that he obeys unquestioningly and just does whatever he's told. And it's the same kind of a thing that drives these games with language that are being played in our day and games with gender and sexuality and accusations of racism more broadly in our day. If you want to get with the times and help young homeschool families to understand the world as it is today, then that's the direction you should be going, is in helping make sense of that fact, not capitulating to it. And yet to omit words like squaw from H.E. Marshall's book, which I have I have a copy of right here on my desk. I have our old unedited copy that we use for our kids' schooling. You are not helping our children to be world changers by taking the word squaw out of H.E. Marshall's This Country of Ours. In fact, you're sending just the opposite kind of a signal that the world is going to change you, and the sooner you figure that out, the better it'll go for you. This is a problem. This is a problem. And quite frankly, even if it was a word that I take exception to, which I don't, 
take exception to the word squaw, by the way. And I don't take exception to referring to the red man any more than I take exception to people referring to me as a white man. What? Because somebody has said it in a mean, mean, ugly, nasty way. Therefore, it's off limits for the rest of us, regardless what our intentions are when we say it, because somebody's going to be offended. All of a sudden, we're going to go back to works that we say we respect so much, which are nearly sacred to us, which we regard as timeless classics. And we're going to censor them because that's what we're doing here. We're censoring H.E. Marshall. You didn't ask her, hey, you know, what do you think about substituting some of these words? You, you, you might trip people up and that's going to be considered offensive. You can't. You can't. You can't ask H.E. Marshall because she's passed away a long time ago. And so what you're doing is you're retroactively censoring her. And as an author myself, I am gravely, gravely disturbed by that. God forbid anybody go back through my work after I'm gone, a century after I've passed on, and start picking and choosing which words I used, which they regard as offensive, to just strike from my books. God forbid. That is not good. That's not a good example to set. It is actually of a piece with the cancel culture. Because what, right? If you left that word in, would you no longer be able to recommend H.E. Marshall's This Country of Ours? Boy, I really hope not. I, I really hope that's not where this is going, even with Ambleside Online. And yet, what this reminds me of is something more akin to the Queen James Bible, less akin to the message. You know, if you're going to take some long deceased author's work and start omitting and striking certain words and phrases, I understand it's not the same as going in and omitting certain passages or doing whatever you want with them in the Bible. I understand that, but it's related. Eugene Peterson paraphrased the entire Bible with the message, the Bible in contemporary language. You don't use the message Bible by Eugene Peterson as a study Bible, except maybe as a commentary alongside a word-for-word translation, a good word-for-word, like the NASB, like the ESV, for instance. You don't use the Message Bible as a study Bible when you want to know the original wording of something and its semantic range. But kudos to Eugene Peterson, because he's not doing the thing that the folks selling the Queen James Bible have been doing for 11 years. What have they been doing? On Amazon, they have God listed as the author. No, 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 no. You have perverted and twisted what he said. God didn't say that. Not the way you're presenting it. And we know that curses are promised. All the curses in the book are promised towards anybody who either adds to or removes from this book, the Bible. You could say the book of Revelation, but you could also say the Bible more broadly, more generally. But there's something sacred. Just like we are image bearers of the Almighty, I think there's something sacred about taking someone else's work when we know exactly the word choice that they elected and fiddling with it because people have decided to be offended about such things nowadays. Where does it stop? Where does it stop? Also, what's driving it? Well, going back to the announcement more recent from, I think it was Monday, 
Paragraph four, let's talk about that again. And let's talk about that in conjunction with this work that's being done or has been done with this country of ours. For the Spiritual Formations books, we have added some inspirational missionary biographies. Great. We've also increased the impact of the other books by highlighting just one or two per year. Okay. We have added one current book that's written by a contemporary, Jackie Hill Perry, yet is still doctrinally sound. Ooh. Whoa. Okay. Wait, 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 wait. Pause. Time out. Time out. Time out. Time out. A lot of people, just, just so you're aware, yeah, if you're not on this Ambleside Online discussion group community on Facebook, you won't know. But my wife and I, we scrolled through several of the comments, maybe a dozen or more of the comments in reply to this announcement. And a theme again and again and again was, ooh, Jackie Hill Perry, really? I don't trust Jackie Hill Perry, but I do trust the AO advisory and the auxiliary. So we'll give her a try. Jackie Hill Perry, you may recognize as the author of Gay Girl, Good God, which we have a copy of. I mean, I'm not opposed to reading her works. What I'm concerned about is if you're looking for voices of diversity, equity, and inclusivity to incorporate into AO, and you're looking for more black voices, or can I say that? Or will I get canceled for saying black voices? More women of color who were formerly lesbians, but are now married and now preach to men and women all over the place who affirm critical race theory, by the way. And yes, that's a fact. That's a fact. She affirms critical race theory and derides people who are concerned about it, implying that they're all racist. And that's the reason why they would be opposed to CRT. Your racism is showing. If you're looking for voices of color, even contemporary ones, why not go with Vody Bakum, for instance, Fault Lines, for instance, where he talks about ethnic Gnosticism, whereby we suppose that the more intersectional somebody is, the better they really understand Christ. So we create hierarchies and we say things like a white person in America, a straight white male in particular in America, can't really understand what Jesus went through, really can't understand God's love for sinners, really doesn't know their Bible. They really don't have eyes to see, and they think that they do. And then when they get offended at being told that they're less than, when they get offended at being marginalized and written off and dismissed just based on their gender and their sexual identity or orientation, their racism is showing, their ignorance is showing. It's not their problem per se, but they need to reckon with what their race has done. Ethnic Gnosticism is a term that Vody Bakum introduced me to. Why don't you put that into your recommended reading list? Is it already? Well, then you have a contemporary voice. That would be far better than recommending Jackie Hill Perry. Far better. I'm going to go ahead and play a little bit of audio here from Jackie Hill Perry's Instagram from May 20th, 2022. So not years and years and years ago, not a different life, not a whole different Jackie Hill Perry. Go ahead and take a listen and I'll 
help you to understand what it is that you're hearing if you're not so good at understanding the lyrics to rap. Here's cut one. Take a listen. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 One verse a week, that's my daily diet. Y'all talk too much, y'all should try some silence. They shooting no grocery stores, where the sirens. They preach against CRT like it ain't white boys with AOS that's dreaming about killing me. Still in my body and tied to lynching tree. Uh, I'm about to buy back my granny house, get my own reparations. I ain't patient now, y'all. Satan gon' play in the lake that was waiting for us. You playing, I'm praying for love. What if I told you they stole us and told us the Holy Ghost ain't coming, summoning blood? Judgment is coming, I'm running that race and the races. The lake is just waiting for you. Ah, okay. So what did we catch there? (laughs) She has a problem, it would seem, with people preaching against critical race theory. When we know, she says, we know that it's white boys with AR-15s who want to murder her and people like her because of the color of their skin. Okay. Uh, I assume this is especially a reference, not just, but especially a reference to the young man who was walking the streets of an American city when BLM riots were going on. He was there with his AR-15 and got attacked with murderous intent, very obviously. Somebody was going to try and murder him with a gun. Somebody was going to try and murder him with a skateboard. He defended himself. So now he's just a white boy there to kill black people, supposedly. That's the slant here. That's the spin here. Uncritically accepted because of critical race theory. And why would we put Jackie Hill Perry to the fore for our young homeschooling kids? Because as near as you can tell, she's doctrinally sound. Really? Really? Hmm. Hmm. Wikipedia says this in the entry for Jackie Hill Perry. Born June 21st, 1989, she's an American poet, writer, and hip-hop artist who initially garnered popularity for her performances of spoken word pieces such as My Life as a Stud, A Poem About Weed, and Jigaboo at the Passion for Christ movement, P4CM. She has written for various Christian ministry organizations such as The Resurgence and John Piper's Desiring God on the topic of Christianity and homosexuality. She signed to the Portland, Oregon-based Christian hip-hop label Humble Beast in January 2014 and released her debut album November 4th, 2014, available both commercially and for free. Hill married fellow spoken word artist Preston Perry in March 2014. The couple currently has four children. That's fine. That's, well, I'm glad that she renounced her homosexuality. She got married to a man. She's got children. I'm glad for those things. Those are good things. They don't necessarily mean that she is now somebody that we should all listen to for sound doctrine. If she has sound doctrine on most things, great. That's great. But why would we put someone to the fore With her checking of boxes, if she writes about Christianity and homosexuality as though we need more intersectionality in our homeschool curriculum, are we perhaps having some of this cultural Marxism and the CRT creeping into 
our homeschool curriculum and the way that we think about our homeschool curriculum. I would ask, I would ask again, if you're looking for contemporary voices who are going to be doctrinally sound, who are people of color, you could go with, why didn't you go with Vody Bakum, Fault Lines? Why not more Thomas Sowell? Why not Shelby Steele? Those are also options, but they're decidedly conservative options, which I would imagine is more in line with what you're trying to do with reading classic works of literature. You're trying to conserve our appreciation for these timeless treasures. So wouldn't you go with a more conservative author, speaker, voice, commentator, if you're trying to speak to the issues of today? Now, let me read for you just a little bit, just a little bit of one of the poems that's highlighted here in the Wikipedia article. One of the spoken word pieces that Jackie Hill Perry became famous in the first place was discovered as a result of having written. My life is a stud. I remember the first time I kissed her lips as my heart began to flip, all moral convictions beginning to flip. I grabbed her hips and kissed her bottom lips because I always wanted to try it. For many years, the enemy infiltrated my thoughts with homosexual merchandise, and that day I decided to buy it, but he tricked me. He had me thinking that I could just try it one time and see what it was like and I could move on, but it didn't work like that. One year into me, him, hers, relationship, my gender did a flip like that, sports bras over breasts, wife beater over chest, white tee over rest. Now the organs that qualify me as a woman lay flat as my back turned to the king. I'm wearing boxers as if I got something dangling in between them, but nope, I'm still a queen. It seems that our outward exterior is often shaped by the inward Richter scale of our own self-esteem and mine's was low. I didn't know where to go with these perverted thoughts of mine. I remember it started when some genitals were stuffed in my mouth at the age of five. I'm growing up wondering why I'm crushing on girls when I know it's natural to like guys, my heart steadily being hardened because no guy wanted eye for eye, just thighs. Daddy kept saying hi, then bye, then hi. Now I can't, no, I can't, now I can't trust guys. Then my daddy just up and died on me. His funeral was the last time I stepped foot into a church. I refused to deal with the eyes looking down on this deep-voiced masculine girl, yet couldn't see past my face to pray, past the pants falling past my waist, past the fitted caps and the braids, past the past hurts in my heart that patterned this ex-stud standing before you today. All I wanted was a hug. All I needed was someone telling me of God's love and the delivering power of his blood shed for the lost. I had to realize how 1 Peter 2.24 lets me know how he became me on that cross, a stud, so that I would be able to die to this sin and live for righteousness. Yet then again, this flesh I'm in was enjoying itself. Even though the laws of truth were written on my heart, I still chose to choose. I still chose to choose to deny him. And if I didn't repent of my sin and trust in him, and this heart inside my chest stopped beating, 20 billion years would have went by and I still would have been frying. I remember the first time I bought my first Cyberskin strap-on and I'm just going to stop right there. Okay? I'm going to stop right there because this is one of the poems, one of the spoken word poems that Jackie Hill Perry got started on in being a public figure in American Christianity. This is one of the works 
And a lot of things are all mixed up here and it's messy. And I want you to consider with me for a moment that one of the works that's being taken off of the AO reading list, at least one, is by a certain Joshua Harris, who I remember back when I was in high school, had some very popular books that you could find at any Christian bookstore in America. He wrote, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, for instance. That was the really big one. That was the really popular one. Hitting just in time with purity culture, and you had promise rings being given from fathers to daughters, like the daughter was pledging to save herself for marriage, and the father was going to guard her chastity. And it got weird. I Kissed Dating Goodbye author Joshua Harris suddenly became this celebrity. He was a homeschool kid, if I remember right. And all of a sudden, he's being asked to speak at all these conferences and get up there in front of rooms full of pastors and ministry leaders and Christians and tell them how it is about dating. And then next thing you know, he's being asked to pastor a church. And next thing you know, he's part of these roundtable discussions with Mark Driscoll and others, which I believe the Gospel Coalition in its early days was hosting and promoting. And then next thing you know, he's leaving his wife. He's coming out as a gay man, I think it is, leaving the pastorate, leaving Christianity. And what does he say in hindsight? He says that he wasn't ready. He wasn't properly trained, properly protected. In some sense, he was used because he would draw a crowd, because he would sell books. He was used. He was exploited. He wasn't protected. He didn't know near enough to be put in the position that he was put in. And now a work that was on the AO lists, the Ambleside Online lists for a contemporary voice with regards to worldview gets taken off and Jackie Hill Perry gets put on. And how do you know you're not making the exact same mistake just in a different direction? How do you know? Oh, she was a homosexual and she became a Christian and she believes the gospel. And so anything else that she says, if she wants to describe in the most explicit detail what she did as a lesbian, as part of her sharing of her testimony, that now is a better testimony than my testimony or your testimony. If we weren't lesbians before we became Christians, watch out, watch out. You know, just because she's repented of some of these things, that doesn't mean that we need to go into every last little detail and get explicit. You know, there was this story that came out this week about a gal by the name of Black China, or that's how she was billed. That was her stage name. She had an OnlyFans and was a performing artist, or so they would say. And she was getting very, very satanic and very demonic increasingly as she was going down this road of basically online prostitution. And then here recently, she came to faith in Christ and she had a tattoo of a Baphomet, which is like a symbol for Satan's face, you know, the goat headed demon for Satanists. Uh, she had a tattoo of a Baphomet removed and I think posted video of it. And deleted her OnlyFans account. And she's going to leave all that behind because that was her past life. 
If all of a sudden, next thing you know, she writes a book and next thing you know, she's getting up and she's preaching to large conferences of men and women about in detail what she was doing with OnlyFans. And then all of a sudden she's like, oh, hey, why don't I just show a slideshow of pictures and videos and all the stuff that used to be on my OnlyFans? Somebody with some maturity and some sense should be like, hey, no, that's not good for all the rest of us. That doesn't need to be presented right now. You don't need to go into all that detail. We don't all need to see that and hear that and experience that. And yet the slippery slope that we're on with regards to Jackie Hill Perry here will have us putting her book on a reading list for AO homeschooling kids in the interest of diversity, equity, and inclusivity. And she's a proponent of CRT. You know, I had a Chinese student. That's how he described himself. That's all he would tell me. He wouldn't tell me his name, but he just described himself as a Chinese student. Come across some of my writings here a few years back, and he reached out. And We've spoken over the phone a time or two, written back and forth a bit. He had some big questions about some of the things that are written in the Old Testament and also how he should think about his being Chinese. And what he told me was he was afraid to ask people he knew and the pastor of the church that he attended, he was afraid to talk with them about some of the questions that he had because he didn't know if he would sound dumb or if they would take it the wrong way or how they would receive that. But then he had read some of my articles at On The Rock's blog and he thought, oh, this guy seems like he would be able to have a conversation with me and maybe help me think through some of these things. But one of the things he told me was confusing for him is that he used to be an Obama voting Democrat, and then he became a Christian, and he doesn't know how much of what used to be his sensibilities when he was an Obama voting Democrat are still correct, true, how much of his recoiling from certain things in the Bible is because, well, those those are just hard things, no matter what your background is. How much was his former life that he just hasn't worked through yet? He hasn't taken some of these thoughts captive just yet, and he's in the process, and he, he needs some help. And that's what the church should be about, and that's what Christians should do when they're bearing one another's burdens. But I bring this up because you could have a Jackie Hill Perry for instance, not just, but we'll use her as an example because she's being put forward as an an example. Uh, You could have a Jackie Hill Perry repent of homosexuality, turn away from that. And if the people she's being put to the fore by who are promoting her work, who are asking her to come and speak to large gatherings of Christians across the country, if they're not themselves clear on CRT and they haven't thought through this, they haven't studied it, they don't know what it is, they're kind of riding the fence or they actively support it. She might have a lot that she really needs to work through with regards to CRT that if they're like, oh no, 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 that's great. Include that. Include that CRT with the rest of your message. Are we maybe being baited with, oh, here's a story of a conversion from a life of sin and death to Christianity, to Christ because she turned away from her homosexuality, but her critical race theory 
notions are still intact? Are we being baited? And are we getting something of a package deal that is not going to be good for our mental, emotional, spiritual health, our rightly understanding and rightly handling the word of truth? I'm going to go ahead and play another clip here because maybe the spoken word lyrics, the rap, maybe that's going over some of our heads. But here is a short clip, a short clip from a longer discussion, which is hosted by the Gospel Coalition, or I should say it's available at the website for TGC, featuring Jasmine Holmes, Melissa Kruger, and Jackie Hill Perry talking about the backlash against CRT and how they feel about it. It's about three and a half minutes long. But take a listen. Here's cut two. Critical race theory is kind of being used to limit the kind of history we teach in schools. Yes. You know, whether it's Harriet Tubman. I have a question for y'all. As as teachers, I think one thing we are seeing is that critical race theory is, is, is kind of being used as a, um, I don't want to use the word excuse because that could feel dismissive, mm, yeah. but it, it's being used to limit the kind of history we teach in schools. Yes. You know, whether that's Harriet Tubman, whether that's uh, just all the things, mm-hmm. right? How do you feel about that as teach? Because I've seen on Twitter in particular where teachers are, and I think I saw it on your page, mm-hmm. where teachers are becoming fearful that how, what can I teach without being like reprimanded? Right. When I talk mm-hmm. about the Civil War, right. when I talk about, you know, the West Atlantic slave trade. Mm-hmm. Will they accuse me of being a critical race theorist by doing so? Like, how do y'all... I would be lying if I said that that didn't have something to do with why I stepped away from teaching. Hmm. That that would be a lie. Yeah. Um, Because I was just like, this climate is getting hostile. Hmm. I'm already the only black teacher on campus. Hmm. I already have parents who are complaining about my Instagram. You know, I just like. Yeah. Yeah. I gotta go. <laughs> I gotta go because it's just—it's it's really hard. hard. <laughs> yes, I'm like, yes. you know what? Two plus two is four, and if they start changing and messing with that, we got real problems. By math, <laughs> you mean rocket science light? Yeah, rocket science light. That's nice. right. I was talking to a teacher, and she was like, "Well, they're teaching critical race theory light." at my school and I was like what is that Mm -hmm. and she was like well it's not critical race theory but it uses some of the same phrases and I was like so are they also teaching rocket science light at your school (laughs) and she was like what do you mean I was like well rocket scientists all start out knowing that two plus two is four Mm -hmm. it's very important it's foundational because it's math Mm So like anytime you're teaching math, 
are you training future rocket scientists? Mm -hmm. or are you just teaching a discipline mm. that also is connected to a way more complicated discipline mm. that they're going to run into in the future? Mm -hmm. And she was like, I never thought about it like that. I was like, yeah. I know. Yeah. Okay, now let's go back. Let's go back again to the announcement from Ambleside Online. Let's read it again. So we pair these things together. The world has changed in just a few years, and so many issues have evolved. As a result, some of our worldview books are no longer current. They were dealing with issues that mattered eight years ago, but the world is rapidly changing, and we want Ambleside Online students to be prepared for the world that's out there right now rather than 15 years ago and ready to live in that world. Skipping down to the middle of paragraph four here. We have added one current book that's written by a contemporary, Jackie Hill Perry, yet is still doctrinally sound. Thus, AO's position hasn't changed. We've merely found a new voice to add to our timeless classic books. Again, 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 it's too soon to say these are timeless classic books when they've just come out in the past eight years. I mean, that Jackie Hill Perry discussion with Jasmine Holmes and Melissa Kruger is from February of 2022. So we're not talking eight years ago. We're not talking, well, that was before she had really gone through sanctification to the extent that she would understand the difference between social justice and biblical justice. You know, no thanks. No thanks to Tim Keller and others, David Platt and Eric Mason and... Paul David Tripp. No thanks to those guys for conflating and collapsing the two into one another. And because they do, right? They do. They collapse those into each other. Keller says in Generous Justice that anytime he sees the word justice in the Bible, he writes social in the margins. So he sees social justice and biblical justice as the same thing, which is problematic, to put it mildly. But it's just false. It's just false that... Parents concerned about critical race theory are trying to limit how much kids learn about Harriet Tubman. That's just not true. Or if it's true in some case, like any case at all, then it's just as valid to say that all of the critical race theory folks hold that two plus two equals four reeks of white supremacist patriarchy, which is a thing. I mean, that's, that's a thing that the CRT folks are actually saying. They are saying two plus two equals four reeks of white supremacy. Two plus two equals four is racism. Does that mean that Jackie Hill Perry believes that two plus two equals four? No, but my wife is currently working through the longer full conversation about race episode here. Let's talk podcast. She's currently working through that. It was sent to her. And one of the things that she's described to me, and I haven't listened to it myself yet, but I believe her, is that Jackie Hill Perry comments that CRT is so complicated, it's like rocket science. And she doesn't fully understand it, but she's not the smartest person. But then all these people who are saying they do understand it and they're against it, they must not understand it because she doesn't understand it. Right? So she's not bragging about how smart she is, how wise she is, 
she's kind of humble bragging that she's not very wise. She's not very smart. And yet, for some reason, she doesn't want to accept that parents who are against CRT, regardless of their skin color, because there are lots of black parents and brown parents and red parents and yellow parents and white parents. And if it's okay to say white people, it's okay to say other people's skin color as well. It, it has to be. It just has to be. That, them's the rules. But why, if she's saying, I don't fully understand it, would she refuse to believe that parents who are against it understand it? Well, maybe they understand it and you don't, and you should listen to them instead of dismissing them all as racists. Isn't that kind of the trick that's being played here, potentially, that you just call the other person racist and then you don't have to listen to their argument? Isn't that kind of the cheat? Of course it is. Of course it is. But there's more to it because one of the really big problems with CRT is that it's being coupled with this idea that you can't be racist unless you have the power. We divide everybody into the oppressor, oppressed categories based on who has more power, who has more wealth. And so then in a sense, to embrace somebody who's a proponent of CRT and incorporate their works into your curriculum uncritically, without a whole lot of cautions and warnings, without presenting the other side like Bodhi Bakum in Fault Lines, for instance, is to buy the farm, <laughs> to uh, kick the bucket on homeschooling. Because what will we say? Well, I think that my kids could get a better education being homeschooled. Ah, but isn't that going to just lead to them being oppressors? They're going to be the oppressor class if all these other kids are getting public school educations and they're not getting as good of educations. If your kid has a better education, that means these other kids didn't get as good of an education. If your kids make more money, well, then they're just future oppressors who are predominantly white is another one of the tropes that's floating around. As though black parents aren't homeschooling their kids in droves as well. Increasingly, they are, by the way. But to incorporate Jackie Hill Perry's works when she is a proponent of CRT, when even when she's repentant of her past lifestyle, as a lesbian woman, she's going into way too much detail, way too much detail, way oversharing on what that means. Uh, we understand what it means that you were a lesbian. Like You don't have to go into so much explicit detail in your poetry and then mix that in with the gospel. And we don't have to give that a pass or affirm it or applaud it just because you're intersectional, because that, as Vodi Bakum would explain, is engaging in a kind of ethnic Gnosticism, where, where the people who are intersectional have access to secret knowledge based on standpoint epistemology, based on their lived experience. They know truth and you can't know truth. You can't make valid judgments because you haven't walked a mile in their shoes. Now, pair all this, pair all of this with taking the word squaw out of this country of ours or removing any references to the red man or the red woman because those are deemed offensive now. And in a nutshell, you have a recipe for grave misgivings, which we have now about Ambleside Online. To put it briefly, we've used AO for years, 
for our kids. And I don't see us using AO again. Uh, you lost me. Yeah, you lost me. And I told my wife this as well. I said, okay, what, what other options are there? You know, some of our older boys do CMEC, for instance, which is similar. It's also a Charlotte Mason curriculum. There's a cost to it. It's $300 or so for a year's worth of materials, lesson plans, things laid out, fleshed out, mapped, also reading lists. Maybe we just go with that. How about we just go with CMEC for everybody this next year? That's what I told my wife when I found out about this. And if somebody wants to say, oh, that's not fair, that's so uncharitable to AO, I say, you know what? The buck stops here. Ladies and gentlemen, good intentions or no, let's not be naive. People who make dangerous compromises are not always people with bad intentions. (laughs) Sometimes they're just being stubborn, willful, too clever by half, cowardly. Sometimes they don't know what they don't know. And that can be forgiven. I mean, again, nobody's born knowing everything. But if you couple sometimes not knowing what you don't know and getting taken captive by vain and human philosophy with, on the other hand, a stubbornness to be corrected, which I'm not accusing AO of being too stubborn to admit that they have been wrong in this. I'm not accusing them. I don't know these ladies. I have a notion to send them a message on Facebook with a link to this podcast. I hope it finds them well. I hope it's well-received. Maybe they'll listen. Maybe they'll be persuaded. But I would caution anyone involved in putting out the AO curriculum for how many parents, how, how many families, how many homeschooling families in America. I would caution anybody putting out the material against sanctifying everything you decide, everything you announce, everything you say, everything you put in and remove and adjust and tweak just because you have good intentions, just because you worked really hard on it. I would caution against being easily offended when somebody says, wait a second, this is a poison pill. You're fundamentally undermining the whole premise of this initiative. I mean, how would it be if this most recent announcement were right? The first paragraph, again, and then I got to go. I don't have much time left here. The world has changed in just a few years, and so many issues have evolved. As a result, some of our worldview books are no longer current. They were dealing with issues that mattered eight years ago, but the world is rapidly changing. Full stop. They were dealing with issues that mattered eight years ago implies that these issues that your kids were being taught about no longer matter. So then you've just undermined the education that every kid using your curriculum, every family using your curriculum has been operating under. The premise is that these things have always mattered and they always will matter. And now you're implying that they no longer matter and that moving forward, those kids, they got some useless information. They got some bad information. Well, if that's the case, then we should all put our thinking caps on and we should all be thinking about whether the stuff you're incorporating now is timeless. If some of the works by Joshua Harris or Ravi Zacharias, he's another one, some of his books, I think were on the reading lists as options. But since his passing, all of the allegations of 
inappropriate conduct with massage therapists, women who were not his wife, have led to people retroactively removing his books from their reading lists, removing his books from their libraries. A similar thing has been done with Mark Driscoll, with the falling out at Mars Hill Church. Josh Harris, Robbie Zacharias, Mark Driscoll. If their works have not stood the test of time and they had scandals and they even fell away from the faith in the case of Josh Harris, but their works were doctrinally sound as far as you could tell. Ooh, 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 do we maybe have an exception being granted to Jackie Hill Perry where we say, oh, but her works are doctrinally sound as far as we can tell. Wait a second. You're not using the same standard of judgment. You are not judging with equal weights and measures if you have removed Ravi Zacharias books and Joshua Harris books from your lineup because of things that were said and done outside of those books. You don't keep those books in just because internally, as near as you can tell, they were doctrinally sound. Neither should you incorporate and add books by Jackie Hill Perry just because as near as you can tell, they're internally sound. You should presumably either not consider what happened outside of Josh Harris's books and Ravi Zacharias's books, or you should factor into your considerations what Jackie Hill Perry has said outside of her books that you're going to throw in there. But you got to pick one or else I'm going to say you are giving her a pass because of her intersectionality, because that's going to give a sense of relevance and diversity, equity, inclusivity to your curriculum moving forward. But if you couple that, you couple that with removing the word squaw and references to red men in H.E. Marshall's This Country of Ours, what it looks like is you've been taken captive by DEI thinking. You presumably would also approve of publishers going back and editing problematic words and phrases from Roald Dahl's works, R.L. Stein's works. At a certain point, we just start banning these books entirely because they're in, they're unsalvageable. We start going along with removing To Kill a Mockingbird, for instance, because an ugly word is in it. We start banning Gone with the Wind as well because certain things are presented in a way that people object to. Now, to be clear, I am not a white supremacist, but we live in a day and age where the burden of proof is put on somebody who is white, somebody who is a straight white male and a Christian. The burden of proof is put on them, put on us, put on me to prove that I'm not a white supremacist. I'm not an oppressor because the default is by virtue of my skin color, my sexual orientation, my gender identity, my religious convictions, I have an uphill climb. And what bothers me in the inclusion of Jackie Hill Perry is despite all of the red flags, all of the warning signs, all of the reasons to be cautious, she's going to be added and the word squaw is going to be struck from H.E. Marshall's work. And it's like, we're just going to do the opposite. Whatever the opposite of white supremacy is, that's what we're going to go for. 
Whatever the DEI folks are demanding, that's what we're going to go for. Footnotes are one thing. You put a footnote in, you say, hey, just so everybody knows, this word is now considered offensive by many on the left. But if you want to understand why that is, you really have to grasp the philosophy of the left. And if you're not willing to do that, then my big question is, what are you actually educating your children for? What are you actually preparing them for? To just go along with what the world is demanding of Christians increasingly? Affirmation or else the day of vengeance that's being advertised for trans people this coming Saturday? There are much more efficient ways, much more lucrative, profitable ways to sell out. As for me and my house, I can't in good conscience approve of using AO if this is going to be the sentiment. I would love it if this is reconsidered, reevaluated, but I'm not going to hold my breath for all the same reasons that I don't want to send my kids into a public school and then the public school starts teaching my kids CRT and then I've got to appeal to the school board and I've got to risk having my mic turned off and being put on a terrorist watch list, a no-fly list because I objected, but I'm going to keep my kids in there. No, 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 no. I'm not going to threaten to pull my kids out. We're just going to pull our kids out. And if the people who made these decisions change their minds and they have an aha moment, great. If they're offended that I even said anything about it, well then, my intent was not to offend, but I'm more concerned about the mental, emotional, spiritual health, intellectual health of the kids who are going to be taught these materials, what our paradigm is for teaching these materials as Christian parents in particular. I'm more concerned about that than I am, whether somebody's offended that I questioned their conclusions. I double-checked their math. And that's how we have that's how we have to be. If we're not prepared to do likewise, then I say, maybe you need to do some soul searching about why you're homeschooling in the first place. And what's it for? Whose approval are you seeking? In fact, <laughs> man's approval? Paul says if he were seeking man's approval, still, he would no longer be a servant of Christ. So we have some choosing to do. But, as I said, that's all the time I've got for this episode. I gotta run, as always. Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.